God. She must she must need her diaper oh, changed. Oh, I, I, I can take care of that if you want. Oh, oh. oh that would be great. Okay. I love him. I love him. I love him. Oh, come on. He's a guy. So? He's smart. He's qualified. Give me one good reason we shouldn't try him out. Because it's weird. Why? What, what kind of job is that for a man? A nanny? Oh, it's like if a woman wanted to be... Yes. King? Did Rachel tell you we hired a male nanny? Yeah, I think that's great. Oh, really? Did she tell you he plays the recorder, recites poetry, and bakes madeleines? Oh, how are they? Lighter than air, but that's not the point. <laughs> hey, hey. Rachel and I hired a male nanny. Really? Guys do that? <laughs> that's weird. Thank you. Yeah, that's like a woman wanting to be a... A what? A what? What's the end of that sentence? Yes, what is the end of that sentence? Uh... <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome to Hope. My name is Ashley Lentz. I'm one of the pastors here. I wanted to begin with that clip from Friends for a couple reasons. Number one, Friends is just my most favorite TV show ever. Uh, I've seen every episode like a bajillion times. I fall asleep to Friends at night. I turn the computer brightness all the way down so it's a black screen and I just listen because it takes no mental energy to listen to a show that you know everything about. And if you're a Friends fan, perhaps you remember Joey's answer to that question. If you don't, you can go home and watch and then you can thank me later for not showing Joey's answer and family-friendly church service uh, so you don't have to explain anything to your kids when you get home. But anyway, I thought this would bring a little bit of comic relief to a pretty serious topic that we're going to cover today. You heard in our Bible reading about women who follow Jesus, and so unapologetically, we are going to talk about women who follow Jesus and how God breaks down systems that oppress people, what God says about roles in this world. If you've ever been told you can't do something based on age, gender, social status, maybe your past, and it's something that God is calling you to, something that will further the kingdom of God on earth. God's all about breaking down those structures that tear people down. So as we begin, I just want you to know we're going to take a good look at Scripture today about women in Scripture and how God uses women from Genesis to Revelation. Now, the point of today is not to shame anyone. It's not to offend anyone. When we get offended, we tend to stop listening. And so the point today is to turn us to Scripture is for us to just look at what God, what God does for his people, specifically women. So we're going to dive in, and I'm really excited about it. Also, I should tell you, there is tons of research on this topic. Gender roles, women in the church, the history of women, tons of research. There are theologians on every side of this argument. You can find a theologian to agree with just about anything you want them to agree with. So there's a lot of research out there, and I've done a lot of research, not a huge amount of research like all the people who have degrees in this, but I've done a little bit of that research. This is my career, so trust me, I've, I've looked into it. But I have about 40 minutes to summarize a really huge topic for you. And we're going to dive in. Also, I need to tell you, I am not naive to the few verses 
that explicitly state what a woman can or cannot do in a church and a woman's role in a home. They exist in this book. There are, when I say a few, I literally mean a few. And they're part of a very specific group of documents that were very occasional, written on very specific occasions. And I'm not naive to those things. I know them very well. And guess what? We're not even touching on them today. We don't have time to go there. Because what God says from Genesis to Revelation is far bigger than the couple places that we can pull things out of context to oppress certain people. And so we're going to take an overarching look at what God actually says and how God actually uses women in Scripture. So if you will, open with me Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start at the beginning because that makes sense, doesn't it? Genesis chapter 1, creation. I'm going to pick up in verse 26. God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Genesis 1 verse 27. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Why don't we read this verse together? It's on the screen. Let's read it out loud. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. From the beginning of creation, human beings are the pinnacle. Human beings are the last thing created, and God says they are very good. Everything else is just good. Human beings are very good. And every human being bears this image of God, this highlighted phrase. In Latin, this is called the imago Dei. And it's a deeply theological concept, and briefly summarized, the imago Dei is what every single one of us bears. We are all mirrors of God on earth. Not one person more than another. Every single one of us stands on the foundation of being image bearers of God. That's really important. From the beginning of creation, one was not better than another. From the beginning of creation, male and female are made on this foundational thing. It's the image of God, and it's foundational, and it's also very highly important. We weren't just made to be made. We were made to bear God's image on earth. Every single human being is a mirror of God on earth, and that's a big deal. And then we jump into Scripture, and all throughout the Old Testament, God is going to elevate women. God's going to name them in his story. And from the time period that these stories come, women aren't mentioned outside of scripture in history because they weren't important enough to mention. Cultures at the time, women were only to serve a man's purpose. That was it. And so if women are mentioned in other stories outside of this They're mentioned because a man needs them to go do something for him, to further the man's story. God names women in a time when women weren't named, and God doesn't use them for men in Scripture. God uses them as important pieces in his narrative, in bringing heaven to earth, in inaugurating his kingdom, because every single one of us bears the Imago Dei the image of God. And so briefly, I just want to touch on some of these women, and some of them you heard about in our children's message. Uh, The first one is Hagar. 
If you remember Abram and Sarai, they're going to be Abraham and Sarah. Abram and Sarai can't have kids, but God has made a promise, a covenant with Abram, and he says, you are going to be the father of many nations. And Abram's like, how is that supposed to happen? Because my wife can't have kids. And so Abram takes things into his own hands, and he uh, has a, a son with Hagar, Sarah's servant. And Sarah treats Hagar really nasty about this. And so Hagar leaves. And as this servant Hagar is leaving, she is out on her own. An angel of the Lord encounters her. And this angel says, I'm going to give you more descendants than you can count. Having kids in this culture is really important. And so God is elevating Hagar and says, I see you. I know your role and it's important. And I'm calling it out in you. I'm going to elevate you from just this woman who's having this baby to the side. And I'm going to, I'm going to give you a lineage, Hagar. And Hagar, in reflecting on this, she says, you are the God who sees me. You are the God who sees me. Did you know that God sees you? God sees all of us. We flip to Exodus. We meet Miriam. You heard about Miriam uh, in the children's message. Miriam is a prophet, and Miriam's kind of like a throwaway verse in Exodus 15. I've read through Exodus a couple times. I kind of skip over Miriam. Aaron and Moses have led God's people out of slavery in Egypt. They've parted the Red Sea. They've crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. And then you jump into the next thing. But after all this happens, we meet Miriam, and she's one verse, and it says, Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine and led all the women of of Israel as they played their tambourines and danced. And Miriam sang a song, and Miriam's song is recorded. That's a big deal. The Greek translation of the Hebrew name Miriam is Mary. And in Luke's gospel, Mary, the mother of Jesus, sings a song. It's recorded. It's the Magnifica. There's an important parallel here between Miriam and Mary. These are women who God elevates and says, you're going to be an integral piece in my story. Then we get to uh, Judges. We meet Deborah and Jael. Deborah is one of my most favorite women in scripture. Deborah is a judge. She is the appointed leader of Israel, God's people. She holds court. She settles disputes among God's people. And Deborah leads an army. Deborah has a male commander of her army. His name is Barak. And she says, I need you to go go defeat the the Canaanites, the evil Canaanites. And Barak says, I will go, but only if you go with me, Deborah. And she says, very well, I will go with you. De- this doesn't happen. Number one, women are, women's names aren't mentioned. But number two, what kind of man asks a woman to lead his army into battle? This is bananas for this time period. And God says, it's part of my story. Women's role is whether to produce heirs, whether uh, to lead armies, whether to be a prophet and sing songs. Women's roles are all important. And I see them. And I'm going to talk about them. And so Deborah and Barak go to defeat this Canaanite army. In the midst of this battle, uh, the king of this wicked Canaanite army gets away. His name is King Sisera. And King Sisera stumbles upon a tent. So he's running. He stumbles upon a tent of an Israelite woman named Jael. And Jael says, oh, wicked king of the Canaanites, come here. I shall take care of you. And Jael, regular old lady with a tent, she drugs the wicked king of the Canaanites and then drives a tent peg through his temple. And so when Barak, the leader of that army, comes looking for this king that they knew got away, 
JL's like, yo, I got him. He's right here. I took care of it for you. Women don't bring down kings of wicked armies. They do in God's story. They do in God's story. As we get past Judges, we pass the book of Ruth. It's a whole book named after a woman. Ruth isn't even part of the original Israelite people. She married into it. And Ruth is part of the royal line of David. And David is the line in which Jesus comes from. So Ruth's pretty important. You can read about her. First Samuel 25, we meet Abigail. Abigail's married to a man named Nabal. And Nabal's not a very good guy. And David, who's not quite King David yet, but is leading an army David, comes to Nabal and says, I need some stuff and I need you to help me. And Nabal says, nah, I ain't got time for that. And, and David leaves really mad. And he's about to come back and kill Nabal and his family. And Abigail, the wife of Nabal, says, oh my gosh, I better rescue my family. And so Abigail intercedes for her husband in front of David. And Abigail, straight out of 1 Samuel 25, says to David, I know Nabal is wicked, is a wicked and ill-tempered man. Please don't pay any attention to him. He's a fool just like his name suggests. I'll give you the stuff that you need, David. And even crazier, a man speaking on her, a woman speaking on her husband's behalf. David listens to her, and David respects her, and David doesn't wipe out her family because of her, her wicked and ill-tempered husband. Now, a few verses later, Nabal makes some bad decisions and dies because of those decisions, and then David marries Abigail, and it's a whole thing. But God is using them all the time in really backwards ways from the culture of the day. And the last one I want to talk about is Esther. And this is just a few. There are so many more. Esther, she's queen of Persia and not by choice. Esther is an Israelite woman who gets uh, exiled from her homeland. And she is brought into the harem, not by choice, of the king of Persia, the most powerful empire in the world at the time. And in that harem, she is then elevated to queen of Persia because the king really likes her. So she's the queen of Persia, not by choice. And so Esther sits in a seat of power, but she has no voice in that seat of power. And the Bible is pretty clear about that, that if she were to speak to her husband, she could die. But Esther, in her position, overhears of a plan to wipe out the Jewish people. Her husband and his right-hand man want to commit genocide on God's chosen people, which is her people of origin, and her husband doesn't know that. But so Esther risks her life to ask her husband not to do that. So Esther uses her voice, goes to the king of Persia, her husband, and says, please don't wipe out the Israelite people. And he doesn't. He listens to her. We have women fulfilling all kinds of roles that are very important. And God is elevating them in those roles. God says, I need people to know that you are deeply important, that I see you. And the role that you fulfill is important to my story. If you've ever been told that there's a role that you can't fulfill, but it's important to God's story, God will break down those walls. God is in the business of breaking down those walls and flipping systems. And something happens between the Old Testament and the New Testament because God is uplifting women in the Old Testament all the time. But Jesus enters a culture in which women hang out in the shame category. And in first century Palestinian culture, this was deeply ingrained in how things worked. There were people of honor and there were people of shame. And this isn't a ladder. You don't climb out of shame to get to honor. You're born into these places. And in the place of shame is women, it's children, it's anybody who has some sort of disease or illness. 
And the people of honor are religious leaders, people with money, mostly men. And that's just how it was in Jesus' day. So what happens between the women of the Old Testament and this honor and shame culture into which Jesus steps into? Really briefly, again, this is a lot of history in a really short amount of time. Really briefly, there are two really important things you should know about the world that Jesus steps into. The first is that Greek influence takes over. The Greek culture, Hellenistic culture, takes over the world. And the Greeks are famous for their philosophy and their art. And you know what Greek philosophy is in this day? Man is the measure of all things. The Greeks loved men. Men are beautiful. Men are the epitome of creation for Greek thought. And we see this portrayed in literature, in art, in philosophy. And so this is the culture in, in which first century world is living. This is the world in which all women are living. I took a class in college. It was my final semester at the University of Iowa. I needed an art history credit to graduate. And so I thought, I'm on the downhill slope. I'll pick something that sounds kind of cool and I'll just scoot on by. So I picked the class called Cave Paintings to Cathedrals because I thought that sounds interesting. I show up in a giant lecture hall about this size and I think, for such a specific class, like this is a big amount of people to be in, you know, like this is like a lot of people for such a specific art class. Come to find out, Cave Paintings to Cathedrals is the primary weed out class for art history majors at the University of Iowa. So me, a psychology major, on her way out, was in a really challenging weed-out class for people who wanted to study art, and I knew zero things about art. I actually really enjoyed the class. It was literally all memorization of art pieces from cave paintings to cathedrals. You had to know uh, the date that the art was created, the original location, the current location of that art piece, who created it, and what material it was created on. And so I memorized that for a lot of pieces of art from cave paintings to cathedrals. Do you know what I remember from that class? I remember Greek art because it completely transformed the world. The spring break of my senior year of college, Tyler and I were able to go to New York City. And it was the first time that I was in a really prominent museum. We went to the Met. And some of the, the art pieces that I was learning about in class were in the Met. And there is a picture of me standing next to one of the first Greek sculpted statues. And it's of a naked man. And I'm like, so I can show my art history professor what we're learning about is like out in the real world. What I remember is how much the Greeks loved man. And this is just a reality of the world. But so this culture takes over. And then there's a time between testaments, right? The intertestamental period. It's approximately 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And God seemingly falls silent. There's no more prophets. There's no more books of the Bible. There's no more visions. There's no more judges in Israel. But God's people still exist. And his Jewish people are still going to synagogue. They're still celebrating Jewish feasts, the Passover, Jewish festivals. So they're still there for these 400 years. A certain thing happens in these 400 years. Some literature comes out in these 400 years. And there's about seven books that occur specifically in the intertestamental period that are not contained in this canon of scripture. These books are called the Apocrypha or the Apocryphal texts. Apocrypha means hidden text. 
They're also considered deuterocanonical, deutero to canon, collection, second canon, because they're not part of scripture. But these books were being preached in synagogue, and if you've ever seen a Catholic Bible or held one, you've maybe read pieces of the Apocrypha. They're still around. There's a reason they're not in here. It's not the inspired word of God. That's why everybody who put this together tossed them out. It's very obvious that these books were written with a very specific philosophy behind them, namely the Greek one. And they were written by men who had influence in the means to write them. But nonetheless, these books end up in synagogue. Books that state things like, woman is the source of all sin. A man's anger is better than a woman's kindness. So if you're a woman... You're living in a culture that is elevating men. And you're going to church in a place where you are being preached to that you are the source of sin and shame. Biblical culturist Christy McClellan says, when, God, when man thinks they are God, God becomes man. And this is the world into which Jesus steps. And it brings us to our scripture reading today. You heard from, um, you heard in Luke chapter 8. I want to back us up to what precedes Luke chapter 8 verse 1. It's a story of a woman who anoints Jesus. And she's a sinful woman, the Bible says. Jesus is eating at the home of Simon, a Pharisee, a religious leader. And a certain immoral woman from that city heard that he is eating there. And she shows up. She brings a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. She kneels behind Jesus, weeping at his feet. Her tears fall on his feet, and she wipes them off with her hair. She continues to kiss his feet and puts perfume on them. And Simon, the Pharisee, the religious leader, says, obviously Jesus is not the prophet we thought he was because that woman is a sinner, and he's letting this person of shame touch him. And Jesus has something to say to Simon. And Jesus turns to the woman Jesus turns his back to the people of honor and he turns to the woman behind him and he says, Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. In Jewish culture, hair is a thing of honor and so women kept their hair back and covered. And this woman, she's already a woman, she's already a sinner. She has no shame to lose. So she shows up at Jesus' feet, and she lets down her hair. And she washes his feet with this thing of honor, because she's already in a place of shame. What more can she give? Well, I'll wash his feet with my hair. And Jesus continues to tell Simon, she's washed her tears with my hair, and you didn't wash my feet. You, Simon, didn't greet me with a kiss. But from the first time I came in, she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You, Simon, neglected the courtesy of anointing my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. Jesus says, I tell you, her sins and they are many have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. And Jesus says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. An encounter with Jesus has just elevated and restored this woman to a place of honor. And in the meantime, not only did Jesus flip this honor and shame culture on its head, 
He looked at the person in the room who was hosting the meal, and good hosting, good hospitality is a theme throughout Luke. You can go look look at this. All the times people show up and hospitality is important. And Jesus looks at the person in a place of honor who knows hospitality, who knows the culture of honor and shame, and he looks at him and he says, you were supposed to greet me with a kiss, and you didn't, but she did. You were supposed to dust, wipe my feet off, wipe the dust off my feet. And you didn't do that, Simon, she did. You were supposed to anoint me when I entered your house, and you didn't do that person of honor, she did. And so in one swift swoop, Jesus has turned a whole bunch of systems on end. And he's identified a woman and restored her and brought her back to the Imago Dei, the image of God. And the person who thought they were kind of above it all, he restored their honor too. And he said, hold on, there's an image here that we all represent. And she's figured it out and you missed it. I want to show you a clip from uh, the, the TV series, The Chosen. And full disclosure, I haven't watched the whole series. And this is a fictional portrayal of the real life of Jesus Christ. But I think what it does really, really well is put us in the shoes of being there. And so in this clip, we're going to watch Jesus encounter a woman. And imagine the power. Watch what happens when this woman is encountered. Watch the power. Watch how she is changed. Take a look. So did it work? I'm sorry, Lilith. Elias? What? We should talk, huh? Oh, what, huh? It's going to scratch me, too. Oh, come on. Not now. So Not now. I, she smells anyway. I don't know what else I can do to help you. Give me that. Lots of it. That's not going to solve your problems. It's meant to distract from no them. No more preaching. Just give it to me. Lilith, please listen to what I'm
Jesus changes everything. Jesus steps into the world and flips systems on its head, systems that bring people down, systems that don't bring people up to Imago Dei, the image of God. He says, in my world, there is no shame. I used this phrase a while ago when I was preaching, and it seems super cliche. There is no shame in Jesus' name. But it's true. What we see God doing throughout Scripture is that there's no room for shame in his kingdom. So would you all repeat with me, there is no shame in Jesus' name. There is no shame in Jesus' name. Jesus is in the business of flipping these things over because he sees everyone and every role that we fill called by God is an important role. There is no shame in Jesus' name. And that brings us to the women who follow Jesus in Luke chapter 8. Luke is the only gospel writer who names these women before they show up at the cross and the empty tomb. The other gospel writers tell us there are women who are part of Jesus' disciples. They don't name them. Luke does. He does it early on. He wants you to know that these are women who are seen by God, who are invited to the Jesus party. Luke 8, verse 1, soon afterward, Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. He took his 12 disciples with him, along with some women who'd been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among them were Mary Magdalene, from whom he'd cast out seven demons, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's business manager, Susanna, and many others who were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. These women are so important that they are named in Luke's gospel. And if you're following along in the Bible readings for the year, Luke points out women a lot. In fact, when something important happens with a man in the story, Luke's make, Luke makes sure to tell you that it also happens to a woman. When Jesus is born, an angel appears to Joseph and an angel appears to Mary. When Jesus is then presented at the temple, he's presented to Simeon. And then he's presented to Anna. When Jesus heals a man, he then heals a woman. And there are these pairings throughout the entire gospel of Luke so that we see this isn't just like a one-time thing. This is who Jesus is. He elevates and he restores all the time. He's going to name the women before they show up at the cross. The women are the last ones at the cross and the first ones at the tomb. The women are the ones who go. They are the first evangels who say, this tomb is empty, people. Something has happened and we're here to proclaim it to you. N.T. Wright says about these women who Luke names, 
And he writes a scholar, one of the greatest uh, scholars of our, of our century. He says, these women have done the unthinkable. They have left the well-defined social space of home and family where they had a role and a duty and have chosen to accompany Jesus and his followers on the road from place to place, looking after their needs and doing so, moreover, out of their own pockets. This is every bit as shocking from a first century point of view as the story of the woman letting her hair down and kissing Jesus' feet. This is shocking. But when we encounter Jesus, when he encounters us, walls fall, people are restored, and systems are changed. There's a historian, her name is Beth Allison Barr. Beth Allison Barr is a PhD professor at Baylor University. Uh, Beth Allison Barr grew up in, in the South and grew up in the church in a very specific tradition that has very specified gender roles. And for Beth Allison Barr, that wasn't a problem. She was okay with those gender roles. And that's great. It works for her. But then Beth Allison Barr became a professor of history, and specifically women in history from creation to present day. And what Beth Allison Barr learned about history and women in history is that from the beginning of time, aside from these women, to present day, women were subjugated. Women were always given lesser roles than men. And if women wanted to step into a different role, they weren't allowed to do that because of structures put in place by men. And Beth Allison Barr grew up in the church. And so she knew that church people, Christ followers, are supposed to be different than the world. And so her theology wasn't her red flag. She was okay with her gender roles. But then she learned history. And history to her was the red flag. And she said, hold on. If Christians are supposed to be different from the world, then why do Christians treat women the same way that the world has treated women throughout history? And so Beth Allison Barr has done a lot of research and written books on this. People of God, we are called to be different. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Paul says in Romans. If there are systems in place that conform to the world, that conform to the history of the world, that put people down, that denigrate their image of God, that's not a system of God. When God encounters us, those walls fall. People are restored to their image that mirrors God and systems change. Can you tell there's a small fire in my soul about this? When God lights those fires and he does it for every single one of us, follow the fire. There's a reason it's there. It's because there's some sort of system that needs people to be different. It's, there's systems that need revival. And we, church, are the change. We get to be different. We get to say, this isn't working for us. In fact, it's not working for God. He does something different. And when we do that, when you step into that calling, people are restored. That has eternal impact. That matters. And so if there are fires in your soul, if God has encountered you and there's little burnings and you're just not sure what to do with it, follow it.
ask questions, pray, be a little bit daring, there's a reason it's there. And if anyone has ever told you you cannot do something because of your age, your gender, your social status, your past, and it's something that God is calling you into, God calls baloney on what the social structures say. God says, I am far bigger than those walls and I will tear them down for you. The image I sh- or the clip I showed you from The Chosen, uh, that's from episode one. And what I didn't show you is that before Mary's encounter with Jesus, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, tries to heal her and he- it doesn't work. I want to show you one more clip. And Nicodemus recognizes Mary and notices that something is different. And watch how Mary articulates the difference in her life, what this encounter with Jesus has done for her. Take a look. It's you. It's real. Lilith. No, no, please, don't be frightened. My name is Nicodemus. I'm, I ministered to you, Lilith. I don't answer to that name. I am Mary. I was born Mary. But you were called Lilith, yes? Please, I must go. No, no, please, Mary. I, I am desperate for your help, Mary. I'm a, I'm a Pharisee. I'm visiting from Jerusalem. I'm a man of God. And I believe you have experienced a miracle, Mary. Are you really a Pharisee? Yes. I'm sorry, I wasn't... I'm not here to enforce Jewish law. So how do you know who I am? You really don't remember me at all. I burned incense. I don't remember. It's all a blur. I can't go back into that. No, no, I don't want you to. I can't even imagine. But you you are healed. That, that much is clear. I just want to understand how it happened. That makes two of us. <laughs> how long after my visit did you feel the change? It wasn't anything you did. It was someone else. Some one else? He called me Mary. He said, I am his. I am redeemed. And it was so? Who did this? I don't know his name. And even if I did, I could not tell you. Why not? His time for men to know has not yet come. He performs miracles and seeks no credit? What does he look like? Is he a member of Sanhedrin? Would you at least know him if you saw him again? I don't know why I am sharing this with you. I, I don't understand it myself. But here is what I can tell you. I was one way. And now I am completely different. And the thing that happened in between was him. 
So yes, I will know him for the rest of my life. <laughs> I was one way and now I'm completely different. When God encounters us, it changes the world. Certainly it changes us. It restores us. It brings us to places of honor. And it changes the world around us. We all take part in that. How does God want to use me to change a broken system, to elevate people, to let them know that they represent the image of God? It's a question we can all ask ourselves. How does God want to use me to change systems that hurt people, to restore people's image back to the Imago Dei? We're changed when God encounters us. How does God encounter us? Right here, in the pages of scripture. This is his living, breathing word. When I read about women in the Bible, does it fan my flame or what? It's working. It's powerful. Read it. You don't have to read the whole thing in a year if that's not your jam, and that's okay. Maybe read Matthew this year, or Mark, or Romans, or Genesis. But get to know who God actually is and how he actually works. How else do we encounter God? Right here, in community, in worship. How else? Well, outside the walls, every single day, God shows up in our life. Don't miss it. Sometimes God wants to encounter us and we put up a wall and we say, no thanks, it would be a lot easier if you didn't. My life's good the way it is, God, but thanks. Let him break down those walls. Let him encounter you because it will change the world and it will elevate and restore people. It might elevate and restore you in a way you didn't even know you needed. That's what God does. He sees all of us all the time. Let him encounter you. Let him change you. And let's be different than the world around us. Let's love in a way that people have never seen before. We're going to sing one last song about being in God's presence. I pray that it might be a time where God encounters you. The flame starts to light. It starts to get fanned. You feel really excited about something. Let this be a safe place because God's here. He sees you and he loves you and you are his image on earth.